Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Good morning. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you all here today. Let us pray. 
Our Father, a sanctuary, it is a holy place. We pray that we would prepare our hearts to be holy places for your spirit to dwell. We pray that today as we gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus, that we might exalt him as Lord, that we might honor you, Father, in so doing, and that we might enjoy the fellowship of your spirit in our midst. Please teach us, please guide us, please aid us as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. May it be pleasing in your sight. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our call to worship this morning comes from Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Jesus was sitting across from the temple treasury. He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And this is the word of the Lord. If you're opening your scriptures this morning, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Yes, we've made it to the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. But I promise you, we won't be getting through the entire chapter today. Matter of fact, we're going to be looking at the first four verses of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. This sermon is titled, Not Another Sermon on Tithing. Not another sermon on tithing. Now, some of you may be unfamiliar with the word tithing, but many of you may be very familiar with tithing. Tithing, it's the idea that God's people are to give to support the work of the gospel, and a tithe is supposed to be 10%. And it's commanded, right? Everyone's supposed to give a tithe. Um, or is it commanded of Christians to give a tithe? You know, someone a little bit smarter than me actually did the work of going through the Old Testament where the tithe was commanded of the nation of Israel. And they figured out that if you added up all of the different offerings, sacrifices, food offerings, drink offerings, if you add it all up, you get more than the 10%. You get something uh, more like what our federal government and state and local charges us, which is somewhere around uh, 20 to 30% of our income. Uh, that is what was required of Israel, uh, significantly more than just a 10%. Uh, I, I became painfully aware of the percent just on this very last pay. Uh, I received a bonus at work, and it was a nice little bonus, and I was very excited to get it. But when I actually got it, 33% is what Uncle Sam kept for himself. He took a full third. Boy, it just feels so unjust when that happens. But we're good citizens. 
and we like to drive on good paved roads and enjoy all of the other things that go along with living in a country like this. So we pay our one-third to Uncle Sam. But that's what the tithe was for the people of Israel. It was basically the taxation to support the funding of a nation. Recognizing what the tithe was for Israel is what leads to the title of the sermon, not another sermon on tithing, because this isn't another sermon on tithing. This is a sermon on Christian giving, which is a very different thing. And we're going to learn about that today. 1 Corinthians 16, the first four verses. Paul says, now about the collection for the saints. This signals that he is addressing a question that they have asked. In a previous letter, they asked him about a collection being taken up to distribute to the needy. And now he's going to answer that question. Now about the collection for the saints. Do the same as I instructed the churches in Galatia. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. This is the word of the Lord. We need a little bit of backstory here to understand what's going on. Remember, when we read through a letter like 1 Corinthians, at times it's like we're listening in to one side of a telephone conversation, and we don't know what's being said on the other end of the line. So we need a little bit of information to fill in the backstory so we know what's happening. Paul is answering a question that the Corinthians have asked him regarding a special collection of money that they're going to take up and that Paul is going to take to Jerusalem. But why? What is going on? I want to give you the backstory. It takes a little bit of investigative work on our part, but I'm calling this the Jerusalem Christian Aid. It's Paul's special project that he's been working on. Jerusalem Christian Aid. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, give us some backdrop to what's going on with Paul's special project. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27, we're told that in those days, what days? Well, Paul was a relatively young believer who was living up in Antioch in Syria and was actively, actively involved in a teaching ministry in that church. This is before he started traveling the world as the Apostle Paul. Back in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Holy Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world, the entire Mediterranean world. There would be a severe famine. This took place during the reign of Claudius, the emperor. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea, that's the southern part of Israel, where Jerusalem was located. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So that's the backdrop. Some prophets of the Lord made a prediction that had come true. They predicted 
that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world during the reign of Claudius Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire. That would have been in the mid to late 40s. Paul was writing 1 Corinthians in the very early 50s. So they're in the midst of this famine right now. And as the famine goes on, more and more people are suffering hardship. The rich, the wealthy are still doing pretty well, but it's the poor people who are really suffering as food becomes scarce. Uh, we noted that even some of the Corinthians were experiencing some of the effects of this time of hardship when they had questions earlier in this letter, questions of the Apostle Paul about marriage and is it right to get married or should we wait? The Apostle Paul's answer to them was, there's nothing wrong with getting married. Go ahead and get married, but I'm just going to give you my own opinion. If I were you, I would wait because these are hard times we're coming into right now. And considering the present crisis, the famine, the food shortage, probably be a good thing for you to not have to worry about trying to support a family right now. If you can wait, wait. That was his advice. So there's this, this hardship that many people in the Roman world are experiencing, this time of famine. It had been predicted by the prophets of the Lord, and the disciples throughout the Roman world recognized that this famine was going to hit the people of Judea the hardest. And there were many Christian brothers and sisters in and around Jerusalem that were in dire need by this point in time. And so a collection was being taken up. The churches in Galatia, these were Gentile churches, they said, we want to help. We want to give. Churches in Macedonia said the same thing. And apparently... The churches of Achaia, which is where Corinth was, they had communicated the same desire to the Apostle Paul in a letter or by means of a messenger. They had said, we would like to help. We know that the famine is very severe in Judea. We want to send relief. The Jerusalem Relief Project, Jerusalem Aid. And Paul was heading it up. He was more than willing to assist these churches in organizing the collection of funds and then making sure that the funds were accounted for in a responsible way so that everything was above board and then making sure that there was safe transport for the funds to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, during those times, it was not an uncommon thing for Jews who were living all across the Mediterranean world to send financial support back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. It was such a common thing that it became necessary to provide security, like armed security, for funds that were being sent back. Um, Roman soldiers oftentimes provided security for the funds that were being sent back to Israel. In this situation, it was the church, in many cases, Gentile non-Jewish believers who were contributing money to send to help their brothers and sisters in the area of Jerusalem. And Paul was going to make sure that it got there safe and sound. So that's what's going on here in the first four verses. We have a couple other passages that I would like to turn to today to give you a little bit more information about this collection and how it was all going to play out. 
because Paul gave instructions here in the first four verses about how it was to be dealt with. He said it needed to be done in an orderly way, collections made on the first day of the week. It needed to be according to your ability to give. Each one of you set aside what you're able to give, what you've purposed in your heart that you should give. And he said, when I arrive, we aren't going to be beating the bushes trying to drum up support and trying to shake people down and get money. Each one of you will have already given what you're able to give and we'll just take that collection and we will get it down to Jerusalem. We won't have to do any fundraising whenever I get there. If we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to see that in Paul's second letter, he has found it necessary to talk about this collection again. And we can kind of read between the lines and find out what was going on. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with the very first verse. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia. Now that's over across the water from where Corinth is. During a severe trial brought about by my affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, it was their own free will, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. Paul's saying that the, the believers over in Macedonia, some of them didn't even have much to give, but they wanted to give and they contributed to this project to send relief down to Jerusalem. Verse 5, not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus, Titus is one of Paul's associates, that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. He should finish this collection. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm testifying, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though Jesus was rich as the Son of God, he certainly was. For your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. And in this matter, I am giving advice because it's profitable for you. Who you began last year, not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now, finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire on your part, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It's not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, no. But it's a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be an equality. As it's written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. We're going to pause there in our study. 
So the church in Corinth, along with other churches in that region, they communicated to Paul, hey, we want to give too. We want to support this relief aid that's going to Jerusalem. Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, okay, that's great. We'd love to have your help. Just lay aside on the first day of the week whatever you're able to give, whatever you're willing to give. It's all free will, whatever you can, whatever you want to do. Lay it aside. When I make a trip to Corinth, we aren't going to do any fundraising then. We'll just take what you've collected and we'll take it on down to Jerusalem. Then we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 15, which we just read. And we see that the Apostle Paul has a concern. Maybe he's concerned about some of the troubles that they've had in Corinth that he's had to address by way of a letter. And he's concerned that maybe these people are going to not follow through on what they talked about doing. It's going to be a little bit awkward, too, because in the meanwhile, before he wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he's been over in Macedonia. And those people over there have been begging him, let us help, let us help. We want to contribute too. And well, Paul maybe bragged about the Corinthians a little bit. He maybe said something like, you should see how eager the church is in Achaia over in Corinth, how eager they are. They want to, they want to give and support and show love to their brothers and sisters down in Jerusalem too just like you guys. So Paul's been doing a little bit of fatherly bragging on his kids. And now he's thinking, what's going to happen whenever I finally arrive in Corinth and I've got brothers from Macedonia who come with me? What if the Corinthians haven't followed through? You know, they were talking really good, but what if they haven't actually done it? That's going to be embarrassing for me. It's going to be embarrassing for them. So he feels the need to write to them again. So here in the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians, he's encouraging them. You showed a lot of enthusiasm about sharing with the saints, the people of God. Follow through on it. And, and Titus, my associate who's there with you, he's going to be working with you to make sure that you follow through and you do what you said you were going to do. Let's drop down to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says a little bit more about it. Concerning the ministry to the saints, that's this Jerusalem aid project that he has. He says, it's unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. I've told them Achaia and Corinth, they've been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty. And so that you would be ready, just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. We don't want to twist any arms. The point is this. The person who sows, that is, plants sparingly, will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows or plants generously will also reap generously. 
Each person should do as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly. Not out of compulsion. Since God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Why do you think that is? Why do you think God loves a cheerful giver? Could it be because God himself is a cheerful giver? You know, I think it's easy sometimes to maybe have this picture in our heads that God, who gave his only son Jesus to save us, that maybe his attitude is something like, just look what I had to do for you sinners. Just look what I had to do. Look at what I had to pay. I don't think that the father who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for our justification, I don't think he's like that. I think the father loves to see a heart that is cheerful to give because when he sees that, he says, that's my boy or that's my girl. A chip off the old block, eh? You know, a cheerful giver just like me. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace, every gift overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Hold on to that word righteousness. This is interesting because what the apostle is teaching here is that if you are interested in righteousness, if you're interested in doing good and helping others and supporting the work of the Lord, if that's your motivation, if your interest is righteousness, God will write the checks for that all day long. And that's not to say that it always comes in the form of financial means. Sometimes it does. But whatever it takes for you to reap a reward of righteousness in your life, if that's your goal, if that's what you're interested in. If you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God writes checks for that all day long. It's an open checkbook. In at my workplace at the mill, whenever they get themselves in a situation where something is broke down and they're not able to roll steel, they'll let that go on for a little bit. But if it's a big breakdown, they start getting nervous and they say, we need people here around the clock and they open up the checkbook and they say, just come in and work. What, they tell the maintenance guys, whatever you want to work, just come in and work. Well, what about the overtime? Doesn't matter. We got to get this thing running again. Open checkbook. They write the checks to get it rolling. But the apostle is telling us that if you're interested in righteousness, God has an open checkbook policy. He'll write the checks to make that happen in your life, whatever it takes. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. He's talking about the Jerusalem relief project. Um, 
it's not only supplying the needs of the saints who are suffering in Jerusalem, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. He's saying, as you're giving to help brothers and sisters, they're praising God and thanking Him. And you just wrote the check for God to get some praise and some thanks. You ought to feel pretty good about that. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they, those who are receiving the help, will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul's just overflowing as he thinks about all of the good things that can come out of this project of Christians helping Christians, brothers and sisters helping brothers and sisters. And that leads us to five short points that I want to share with you this morning at the end of the sermon. Five short things to take away from the scriptures that we've read. This isn't another sermon on tithing. Christians are not commanded to tithe. The tithe was for Old Testament Israel. It was for the funding of a nation. The church, believers in Christ, are not commanded to tithe, but they are encouraged to give. And so here's five points about Christian giving that I want to share with you. Number one, Christian giving, it's for the purposes of meeting urgent needs, for providing for equality among brothers and sisters, and for funding the ministry of the gospel. We're not financing or funding a nation in road-building projects and politicians and all of that stuff. We don't have a tithe for those purposes, but Christians give. Christians give in order to meet urgent needs that they see. Christians give to provide equality among brothers and sisters, and Christians give to fund the ministry of the gospel. That's the first point. The second one is this. Christian giving is free will. It's not compulsory. There's no arm twisting. There's no extortion. And preachers who resort to those tactics are wrong. Because Christian giving is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of free will. Has the Lord laid it upon your heart? to help someone in need or to help lift somebody up or to fund the, the ministry of the gospel, if the Lord's laid that on your heart, then follow through and do it. But there's nothing compulsory here. It's free will. Number three, we talked about this briefly. Christian giving should be cheerful, not grudging, cheerfully giving, not reluctant, cheerfully giving. Remember, the Lord loves a cheerful giver because when he sees a heart that is filled with generosity and is happy to help, I think he recognizes one of his own qualities in that individual. That's what catches his attention, a cheerful giver. If you can't be cheerful about what you have to give, maybe you should think about not giving it, perhaps, just maybe. Number four. Oh, and I just realized I told you a lie. 
I told you five short points. I forgot, I added a sixth one very late in the process. There's six here. But number four, giving, Christian giving, it's according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. One person may have much and is able to give a lot. Another person may have very little and can't contribute much. But in God's sight, it's not the amount that matters. It's the heart. God doesn't need money. Remember, the Son of God took a few scraps of bread and some fish, and he fed 5,000 people. It's not about the amount. He can multiply. It's according to what one has, not what one doesn't have. Never feel like you can't contribute because you have little. Remember, the widow who put in the two small coins, she caught Jesus' eye. That caught God's attention. Number five, Paul indicates that the principle of sowing and reaping is operative in Christian giving. The principle of sowing and reaping is operative. Now, we hear TV preachers talk all the time about sowing a seed and you'll receive this from the Lord. Oh my goodness, it's, it's awful. I, I just can't even stand listening to it go on and on. But there is a principle of sowing and reaping. Paul says that generosity is rewarded generously by the Lord. If we plant sparingly, we shouldn't expect to receive a great big harvest. If we plant generously, well, it's built right into the nature of how God deals with things. You can expect a generous reward. That doesn't mean that you're going to get a check in the mail necessarily. Uh, there's rewards that are a whole lot more meaningful than that. Remember what we said about if you desire righteousness, you want to reap a crop, a harvest of righteousness in your life, God will write checks for that all day long. And he will make sure that you have what you need in order to get that crop in, that reward of righteousness. That was number five. And here's number six. And I think this is right at the heart of it all. Christian giving should reflect the sacrificial giving of Christ Jesus. And Paul talks about this back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He talks about how Jesus Christ, he became poor. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. How did Christ become poor? Well, there's a Christmas hymn that we sometimes sing and I think the hymn writer captured it very well. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home there was found no room for thy earthly nativity. Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, emptied himself of every priv privilege, every prerogative that accompanied deity. He became poor for our sakes. How so? How for our sakes? To save us from our sins. To take us from our spiritual poverty and bring us into the very presence of God. Called sons and daughters, heirs of God. 
joint heirs with Jesus Christ, rich beyond measure. Christ became poor so that we could become spiritually rich. Amazing. Our giving should be a reflection of that. Our giving should be an act of gratitude, an act of thanksgiving. It should just be an acknowledgement of, Father, you gave so much to me. I just want to give back. It should reflect the sacrificial giving of Christ Jesus, the one who became poor for us to make us rich. But that's Christian giving in a nutshell. And there's nothing compulsory about it. I know many of us have been taught through the years that you have to give the tithe. Give the tithe if you're able to. That's wonderful. Or use it as a starting point. But don't think that you have to. There's no commandment laid upon the Christian. Christian giving is free will. It's according to what you have, not what you don't have. It should be cheerful, not grudging. But remember, give generously, we reap a generous reward. God writes checks of righteousness all day long. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son, though rich, became poor for our sakes to lift us up out of our poverty, to bring us to you so that we may draw near and be called sons and daughters of the living God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, rich beyond measure. Father, please help us to have hearts that reflect your heart, a heart that is cheerful to give, cheerful to help, cheerful to support the work of bringing men and women, boys and girls, to the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ and to meet urgent needs whenever we see them. We thank you for the great love that you've shown to us. We pray that that love might be reflected in our hearts and in our lives. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has made us so rich, we pray. Amen. May the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever. Amen. Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.